the uh, older I get, the more I understand the difference between, uh, you know, knowing about something and actually knowing. You know what I mean? The difference between knowing something and actually knowing. Growing up, I thought my parents weren't very good models of marriage and what marriage should look like. Uh, so when I was in high school, believe this or not, <laughs> believe this or not, I, I started, I had such a bad experience with what I thought my parents uh, demonstrated as marriage. And by the way, mom, if you're listening to this, dad, if you're listening to this, look, we've had conversations and you know it's true, so I'm not trying to disrespect you. I just got to put that out there. I was like, I can't believe he's talking about his parents like that. Look, we, we get it. Uh, I didn't grow up in a home that was Christian. I grew up in a home that was becoming Christian. My parents became followers of Jesus when I was, uh, when I was around six years old, okay? So they were becoming Christian, as I tell people. And um, but I began reading books on marriage when I was in high school. I began buying books on marriage and reading them. And so by the time I got married, I had probably read more books on marriage than most pastors I knew. And 18 years later, after having been married to my lovely wife, um, obviously married to someone else would be weird, but after being married to her, I can tell you that without a shadow of a doubt, I knew a lot about marriage but I did not know, I did not know <laughs> what marriage was about. Any of you who have been married longer than 10 years, you know what I'm talking about, right? The no, the, the no, right? Okay. Now, most everyone here probably has some ideals of what it means to be a good parent, ideals that are only proved in the reality of actually having kids of your own and challenged in the unique realities that can only be understood in the late night hours or coffee-infused daily obligations to parenthood. Amen to all the parents, right? It can only be understood. In fact, some of you who are newer parents, you're like, oh, I thought I knew. I thought I knew, but I did not. In fact, I probably judged some people for how they parent, and now I keep my mouth shut. I just <laughs> There's a lot of you around here. We had like, what, 50 million babies just with clarity born over COVID? In fact, if you had a baby at the beginning of COVID, you don't have a baby anymore. You have a toddler. <laughs> yeah. Now, I mention all of this because the heart of this series is about leading us to take the journey of familiarizing ourselves with the character and values of Jesus as told through the words of Jesus so that we can embrace the kind of life God desires for us with, wait for it, clarity. So last week we began this new series entitled Written in Red, because even though we can get to know about Jesus by examining maybe the timeline of his life, of events that defined his life here on earth, sometimes the best way to get to know Jesus is to deeply listen to the words of Jesus. Amen. For those who may not know, in the Bible, the words of Jesus are written in red, <laughs> for some Bibles. And it's really there to help the reader quickly spot when Jesus is speaking. And so, therefore, this is the reason for entitling the series Written in Red. Some of you are like, oh, I get it now. And then some of you are like, I didn't even know we had a series title name. I thought it was just about Jesus. Well, last week, Todd, uh, one of our community leaders, did a fantastic job. Thank you, Todd. You guys, you want to appreciate him? Thank you, Todd. Did a fantastic. If you did not hear that message, seriously, you need to go listen to that podcast. He did a great job. Uh, 
He did a great job of expounding on Jesus' teaching of a new command and that he gave to his disciples and really all those that would choose to follow him when he said in John 13, 34, I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If you happen not to be there last week, or maybe you were serving in our kids' ministry, uh, Todd gave three examples of how we can begin to reorient our lives to love one another as Jesus loved. And I just thought they were so good, I had to repeat them. And here it is. First, sacrifice your time, your resources, and your ego. Second, he encouraged us to sacrifice our grudge, our vengeance, our self-righteousness, and forgive And last but not least, sacrifice your safe spot. I love how he told us what that means is basically take the first step in loving others. Don't wait for others to love you first or meet you halfway. Go first. After all, this only makes sense in light of the fact, as Todd reminded us in Romans 5, 8, God proved his own love, demonstrated his own love towards us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ what? Died for us. I love that verse with all my passion because it gives me tons of hope as someone who, on a daily basis, knowingly makes decisions that are incongruent with God's standards. And it's such good. This is the reason why the gospel is such good news. Do you need good news today? Do you need to know that in spite of all you've done, all the decisions you've made, that there is nothing that will cause God to love you any more and nothing you have done that will cause him to love you any less? Do you need to hear that this morning and believe it with your heart, that God loves you? That is the truth of the gospel. He loves you. So good job, Todd. That was great. Today I'm excited to read with you um, something that... Jesus told his disciples kind of at the last moment, right before he ascended into heaven. And I'll be honest with you, this is a passage of scripture I've been waiting to preach for weeks. Um, And over these past seven weeks since I had my open heart surgery, so um, no promises. I will try to get out of here by 1130, but I have a lot to say. (laughs) I'm kidding. Some of you are like, oh no, it's it's fine. It's, It's good. Um, but this is the passage of Scripture that talks about Jesus' expectations of all who commit to being followers of Jesus. Is that you today? All who commit to follow Jesus and serve as members of his church. And it's a reminder of an often undervalued or often ignored principle for living life on mission with God. And before we get to what Jesus says, let's look at how Luke, who is the writer of the book of Acts, sets up the stage. Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 1. This is what Luke writes. He says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, which we know is the book of what? Luke. Luke. That's okay. You get a second chance. That's all right. We, book of Luke. And then He says, after he, who is what? Jesus, had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, 
uh, until the day he had been taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. And it says this in verse 3, after he had suffered, he had also presented himself alive to them <laughs> by convincing proofs. How many of you are glad we have a God who is alive and not dead, right? Okay. All right. Appearing to them over a period of over 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. In other words, Luke reminds his readers and reminds us as we read this of the proof that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And that he is someone who is rightly due the honor of being the Savior and the Master of our lives. And he reminds them that Jesus predicted his own death and his resurrection and pulled it off. <laughs> and so what does Jesus tell his followers who are probably chomping at the bit to spread the word about this good news? What does Jesus tell these followers who literally saw the Savior of the world being beaten and crucified to pay for the penalty of the whole world's sin and then to be miraculously raised so that the people of God can have hope of a new life, a new identity, and a restored relationship with God the Father as well as being welcomed into a new family as a part of a new nation with a new mission to be enlisted in the ranks of a royal priesthood. What does Jesus tell these people? Here's what Jesus says. Verse 4. While he, Jesus, was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, exactly how many days will we be endowed with your Holy Spirit? Is that what he says? No, that, that would actually make sense. That's a question that would make sense. But instead, the disciples, true to their form, acted like you and I often do. We hear what Jesus says, and then our mind goes elsewhere, and then Jesus has to remind us of what he said. And here's what they go. They say this, <laughs> Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? <laughs> he said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but as I was saying, you will receive power. Everyone just say power, power. Do it one more time. It gives me chills. Ready to go. Power. Oh, that's so good. When the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the end of the earth. Like a little kid at a birthday party who is... Uh, being told, um, you know, Johnny, you, you can't open your gifts now. You have to wait till everyone's had their cake. <laughs> Jesus tells his disciples, hey, wait. He also blatantly ignores the questions about Jesus' political influence as a Messiah. Jesus, will you be setting up your kingdom now? What? Jesus basically says. I don't think 
that Luke recording this is simply a coincidence. But I'll get to that in just a second. What is really important to see is that Jesus wants to focus attention on the things that his followers, listen, should be concerned about. Jesus tells the disciples that they need to wait for what? For the promise of God the Father, which is his Holy Spirit. And then they reply with a question about politics. <laughs> and Jesus' response is basically, that's not important, and you don't have to control that. You don't have any control of that anyways, okay? <laughs> but, as I was saying before you interrupted me, you will need to wait so that God's Spirit will come upon you when you... Listen, when that happens, the circles of influence in which you will be witnesses of my gospel... When that happens, <laughs> here's a really cool thing. Those circles of influence, as you are empowered by God's Spirit, will continue to do what? Grow. It will grow. It's kind of like that song some of us sang as we grew up. Read your Bible, pray every day. You will what? Grow, grow, grow. And so what started with what Bible scholars believe to be about only 500 people at the time of Jesus' ascension eventually became a movement that would number about 600 million by 1910 and more than 2 billion by 2010. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And Judea. And so in this statement, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In this statement, Jesus paints a word picture. Can you see it? If you close your eyes, can you see what Jesus is trying to describe? Jesus paints a picture of what history will prove to be a growing set of concentric circles of influence as those who are followers of Jesus, empowered by God's Spirit, began taking this message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, I'm not sure how this is particularly good news for you if you're someone who hasn't decided whether you believe everything you've heard about Jesus in the Bible. In fact, <laughs> most of what I feel God has put on my heart today actually isn't particularly aimed at those who really feel disconnected from God or faith in Jesus. And if you're listening, whether you're here or on podcasts, if that's you, if you're someone who feels disconnected from God, or you feel that Maybe that's not a good descriptor. Maybe you just feel that you're increasingly becoming more and more maybe disenfranchised with a set of belief systems that the realities of and within the realities of what you're experiencing or being exposed to in your everyday life, they seem to be pulling you away from that. Then what I hope you would hear today 
at a minimum, is just a very honest conversation that someone who has been called by God to pastor a local church here in Brooklyn Park and those who have said yes to increasingly submitting all of life to Jesus and Master and Savior, I hope you would just hear an honors conversation about what life for those who follow Jesus looks like. And I hope that what I'm about to say next communicates with sincerity and really, most of all, conviction that we who call ourselves clarity, that we actually really do believe that one, God exists. Two, that we believe he literally came out of his great love for us to be God with us. That he walked and that he talked on this earth, built relationships, had friends, and showed us how we can all find our God-given identity in a restored relationship with our Heavenly Father who is in heaven by confessing with our mouths and believing in our hearts that what? Jesus Christ is Lord. And most importantly, I hope that you get a sense that what we are as a church is that we are desperate, that we are desperately seeking God's wisdom on how we can do more than just hold worship services, offer kids ministries, or help people get connected in relationships that are deep and meaningful and transformative, but that we are actually fulfilling the ultimate goal of every church, which is to lead and inspire people towards growing and entering into a fully engaged relationship with Jesus Christ to make disciples who make disciples. Now, for those of you who consider yourselves a follower of Jesus, and especially if you call Clarity your home, and even more especially if you consider me to be someone who is a pastor in your life, these words of Jesus communicate two very simple yet often forgotten truths of what should be the focus of every believer's life. Two truths. That's all I want to talk about for the rest of the time I have left. First one, I'm going to touch on, I'm going to move away, and we're going to end on it. Second one, well, you're here second. First is this. Followers of Jesus are to live their lives empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, I, that's, that's easy for me to say because it's part of the verse, and it's easy for you to write down if you're taking notes because it makes sense. But do me a favor. Think about that. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are to live every day empowered by the Holy Spirit. And here's a good question for yourself to, to ask yourself. Do I today feel like I'm living as though I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit? If not, there is a breakdown in your own personal theology. But Phil, I believe that God's power is with me. Well, then you can come to repentance today and say, oh God, something has gone amiss. And I do not know why, but I have 
found myself living day to day without yearning for your spirit to empower me today. Today's a good day to start and say, Lord, I need your spirit. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. This truth is, in fact, so important and foundational that even though this truth comes first in mention in this written and read passage of Scripture, I want to spend time at the end of my message, closing in time of worship, focusing on what it means to be empowered by God's Spirit, to wait the Holy, on the Holy Spirit, to seek the Holy Spirit. If you're a person who treats your Bible like a textbook, and in fact, I, I would encourage you right now, Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when. Go ahead and circle, highlight when. And we will talk more about why that is such an important thing in just a second. But for now, I want to skip to the second truth of this passage of Scripture, which is this. The church was meant to grow. To grow in reaching, listen, more and more. Reaching more and more people with the gospel. The church was, now some of you are like, oh, this is all about being a big church and growing church. No, 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 I did not say add. In fact, Acts will tell us the Lord adds to the church as many as being saved. But the church's responsibility, hey, you, that's you and me, is to grow in reaching more and more people. If you've been around Clarity for a while, you know that I've communicated this in one way or another since the day we started. My prayer for Clarity has never been, Lord, make this church big, make it successful. And some of you are like, man, Phil, you probably should have been praying that because that would have been nice. <laughs> but listen, listen. My prayer since we first started this church has always been, Lord, let us be the most helpful helpful in seeing people increasingly submit all of life to Jesus and live life on mission. This is because big and successful can actually be defined. <laughs> Listen, big and successful can be defined in ways that don't see more and more people come to follow Jesus. And I know this because I worked... now. Some of you are going to go back and now look, oh, where did he work? And like, oh, I'm not saying this, but I've worked in churches where you lose your way and you think big and successful and you think of metrics that equal big and successful, but no one's asking, did more people come to faith in Jesus as a result of big and successful? And if I can be honest, and maybe if you dared to be honest with yourself, a very possible reason You got to know, before I even say this, that I have cried many days in recovery over what I'm about to say to you. So I don't say this because I'm upset or disappointed. But God's Spirit, I believe, has been ministering to me and as I've been dependent on His Spirit, I believe the heart of God has been breaking my heart for the things that break His. 
And so when I say this, please know it's out of love to push us towards something that God wants for us. But a possible reason why our church over the past couple years hasn't seen one person come to faith in Jesus because of our collaborative effort to be the body of Christ in the everyday circles of influence of our lives is because we are often tempted to focus our hearts on secondary things instead of primary things. Now I know I'm going to step on some toes with what I'm going to say next, but you need to know that the Lord stepped on my toes regarding confronting what I'm going to call Righteous affinities. (laughs) Righteous affinities. What are righteous affinities? Well, ask a hundred people what they think will help a church grow. You'll get a hundred different answers. Quality and convenient facilities. I want something close. It needs to be close. It needs to be right off the highway. It needs to look nice. It has to have a cross on it somewhere. It needs to be dark, but not too dark, so it doesn't feel like a club, but it can't be too bright so that people can't see my acne. You know, like, you know, or when I have that ugly cry at the, at the what a beautiful name, people don't see me red-faced as I walk back to my seat or whatever. Excellent in hospitality. Passionate, but also skillful displays of worship and music. Fun and engaging programs for kids and teens. Discipleship classes and Bible study groups. Stunning marketing and digital media. I mean, stunning, right? I mean, active participation in social justice causes or faith in action outreaches. Thriving community groups. I mean, that's how you help a church grow. You have thriving community groups or regular outreaches and evangelism initiatives. Now, these righteous affiliations, affinities, not affiliations, but I guess they could be affiliations, These righteous affinities are all good and righteous things that, listen, they do happen in a church that is making more and more disciples, but still they are often a reflection, oftentimes they can be a reflection of people's personal passions. This is why I call them righteous affinities. And it's the source of emails that I've gotten over the years well, pastor, we just need to have more of this. We need to have more of this. We're not growing because we need more of this. We need more of that. <laughs> and I've heard it. And most of the time, they're right. We could use more of this stuff. And every part of my body thinks it's most important when it doesn't get the attention that it needs. Like, my heart <laughs> was not getting the attention that it needed. And so it said, hey, you're going to go through a lot of pain. You should have changed your diet a long time ago, Phil. (laughs) And that's what the parts of our bodies that get the attention they don't deserve do. they, They tend to yell, don't they? To scream out. And it says, hey, I'm the most important thing right now. But the purpose of a body is not just to eat. The purpose of a body is not just to walk. It's more than that. The purpose of a body is to live. (laughs) 
The purpose of this body is to live, not to just see with eyes or walk with feet or work with hands. In fact, this illustration is why the Apostle Paul used it as he was building his argument for how and why the church should, quote, in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not vain. That's a great church right there. And what is that work? What is this work, the Lord's work? It's what he communicated earlier in the letter of 1 Corinthians 2. The church in Corinth, when he wrote this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 30 to 33. So whatever you, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but basically, it doesn't mean do so, you know, God gets, uh, you, know, uh, you know, oh, glory to God. I'll just, glory to God. It's so that people, so God's glory will be expanded, that people will not just see you doing good things, but they will recognize that God is with you. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. So this is how it lets us know that what we do should bring glory to God because the antithesis of that is causing people to do what from God? Stumble from God. This is the work we're called to in verse 33. Even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, and here's the work, so that they may be saved. Salvation is the work that the church should be all in for. So that those in our circles of influence, what may be saved. If there's one thing that God has reminded me during these last seven weeks is I spent time in prayer about clarity and believe me, I have prayed for every single one of you. I mean that. I have prayed for every single one of you. I have prayed for all of us. What God has been speaking into my heart is that we need to remember that we are a body. But not just a body that walks or talks or eats. We live. We live so that people disconnected from God can experience the realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ with clarity and become followers and disciples of Jesus. This is why we exist. As Jesus spoke to his disciples, who, may I remind you, were looking into the eyes of a man that they literally saw get beaten and buried, but now rise from the dead, and were now ready to do literally anything he commanded them to, and you would too, right? Come on. They were ready to do whatever he told them them to Jesus said you will be my witnesses and your impact and influence will not just be in what you see as your immediate circles of influence but it will grow because that's what the work of the Holy Spirit in and through a church focused on God's mission being accomplished in this world does it grows but that first only happens in a church that is filled with people 
back to the truth number one, that are filled with His Spirit, who are seeking His Spirit. In his book, Evangelism as Exiles, one of the books I read while I was in recovery, highly recommend it. A missionary and cross-cultural church planner, he wrote this, writing about his time planting churches in Central Asia and the Middle East, a lot of these places where the gospel was actually illegal. He wrote this, Honestly, there were days when I longed for the opportunity to operate as a traditional Christian minister. I thought it would all be simpler if I could only be known in the community as a missionary and have a visible platform for for introducing people to Christ. Looking back, what I now appreciate about that experience is that it forced me to approach evangelism and discipleship without the typical trappings of our Western ministry culture. It forced me to rely on the Spirit and the Word more than evangelistic programs and events. It forced me to learn what it has meant for Christian in much of history (laughs) to speak for Christ in their everyday lives as sojourners and foreigners in their own land. I love how he wrote that because I'm not the only crazy person who talks like this. He goes on to say, God who made the world and everything in it will one day include us in his kingdom and exalt us with the king, giving us both honor and also a home. We desperately need this future hope if we want the courage to do evangelism as exiles. Yet all around us, today Christians seem to be losing hope. We may not think we've lost it, but so often we convey an attitude of fear or frustration about changes in our society or laws. We make desperate attempts to forestall what seems to be the inevitable decline of the church in our Western society. During all of this, the world is watching our tweets and Facebook posts. They hear us grumbling when we've lost the latest battle in the culture wars. And they listen when our leaders lobby for what is rightfully ours. And they see us grabbing for power and recognition, for glory and honor in this life. I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of a church where they are known for their future hope, not their political or social stances. I want to be a part of a church where the core desire is to be a movement of people who are first and foremost seeking God's power The kind of power that is only given when the Holy Spirit is alive and at work in their lives. Now, I've heard the arguments for why people do not seek the Holy Spirit with all their heart and strength. Why they even push that aside. Oh, it's kind of Pentecostal. I had a Pentecostal friend once. He he was speaking in weird stuff and I, you know, falling down and saying I'm going to be rich. I don't want to be like those guys. Listen, there are extremes to this whole idea of seeking the Spirit And sometimes people point to the fact that Romans 8 9 tells us that all believers have the Holy Spirit. And listen, they are right. If you believe in Jesus, you have God's Spirit. 
But just as all believers have the Holy Spirit, all believers have faith, don't they? Right? Okay, yes. But yet Jesus looks at those who consider themselves part of the faithful and says to them in Matthew chapter 6, verse 30, and he says, Oh, you of little faith. As one pastor and theologian writes in his commentary of what it means to, means to seek the Holy Spirit, he says this. I'm just going to read it because it's so good. I, I thought of stealing it and rewording it, but I was like, ah, oh, just read it. It's really good. He says this. Even though the Spirit is not present in parts, we may only have partial experience of His presence. Or else, why does Paul say, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be, what, filled with the Spirit? He says that not because we are filled, and none of us is filled continually. It is a loving command. Seek this. Be filled with the Spirit. Seek the fullness of all that the Spirit can be for you. Seek it. Don't quench it. As 1 Thessalonians 5.19 tells us. And especially, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30. But seek the Holy Spirit. So today, as our worship team comes back up, um, I want us to enter into the beginnings of what I hope to be a journey of increasingly seeking God's Spirit as a church. Not just in our lives as individuals, but among us. As a corporate fellowship of believers who God has called together to be the body of Christ everywhere we go with everyone we meet. Now, we're not going to do anything weird, okay? I grew up in a Pentecostal tradition, so typically during the Holy Spirit services, we'd throw the lights down, have everybody line up, and I'd go put my hand on you and pray, and Holy Spirit come up on you, and whatever. And if you fall, you fall. Hopefully, you've got blankets to cover, whatever. Uh, listen, it is really simple. Paul said, if you want the Spirit, ask. So this is what we're going to do today. You can either sing this song that I've asked the band to sing and just make it your prayer. It's a song about the Holy Spirit. No, go figure. Or you can just allow the music of the worship team to be the backdrop of your personal plea for God to fill your life to overflowing with His Spirit. Like to ask and believe that He'll do it. And let it be an opportunity to send out a heartfelt prayer that God would empower this church. Oh God, that you would empower this church. With your spirit. So that more and more and more people come to know Jesus. Don't you want that? I want that. And if you're wondering what a prayer like that sounds like, you can take cue. You can take a cue from the final stanza of a hymn I grew up singing that was written in 1907. This has been on my heart for most of my time away. This is a hymn entitled, Have Thine Own Way, Lord. And the last stanza of that song goes like this. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. 
hold over my being absolute sway. Fill with thy spirit till all shall see Christ only, always living in me.